Hi, everyone. Thank you for tuning into Polis Project's roundtable discussion, The Leaders They Want, Leaders of Nobody. My name is Madhuri Shastri, and I'm your moderator for this segment. I'm a freelance writer and the marketing director at Ganika Magazine, and I'm so pleased to welcome Olafemi Taiwo, Darakshan Raja, and Maya McCoy to this roundtable. Thank you all for being here today, and thank you for your work. Vice President-elect Kamala Harris is the first black woman and the first person of Indian descent to occupy this lofty position. While it's a moment of pride for black and brown communities, in this roundtable, we will reflect on the Biden-Harris presidency through a progressive lens. We will focus on the elite capture of conversations around diversity, representation, and inclusion, Islamophobia, the war on terror, American imperialism, and Harris's Tamil identity and her duty towards asylum seekers and immigrants. What can we expect from these newly elected representatives? And how can we ensure that the demands of our communities are not narrowed or erased? Before we begin, I'd like to thank Suchitra Vijayan and the Polis Project team for offering to host this important discussion. Please do um, support their fantastic work. Um, so let's get started. Uh, the way that uh, that we'll, we'll do this is uh, each of you will speak for 10 minutes and then we'll move on to a um, Q&A. And I'd like to begin with um, Saini. Um, Saini is Assistant Professor of Philosophy at uh, Georgetown University. He works on and teaches social political philosophy and ethics with an emphasis on anti-colonial thought and the black radical tradition and he will be speaking to us today about elite capture. Thank you so much, Femi, and uh, the floor is yours. Thank you, happy to be here. So basically, the concept of elite capture is something that I've been thinking about in different forms. Um, and more or less the idea of elite capture is the idea that there's particular people who are advantaged, not necessarily in an absolute sense. So they're not necessarily the most privileged or powerful people in the world, but relative to the other people in their group, whatever that group is, they're better off. And you can't really understand political dynamics in this area in this era or any other without paying attention to kind of intra-group politics as well as intergroup politics. And I think, you know, one of the things that identity politics as it's developed in recent times has been very good at talking about has been intergroup politics. And intra-group politics has been a bit more of a challenge. And so what I'm trying to push with the idea of elite capture is trying to do both at the same time. And I think that recent developments in uh, racial capitalism, globally speaking, have kind of borne out why you really need to pay attention to both intergroup politics and intra-group politics, both politics between groups and within them. Okay, great. For the okay, well, that yeah. Okay, thanks so much. So next up, we have uh, Darakshan. Um, thank you, Femi. Um, Darakshan Raja is the co-director of Justice for Muslims Collective, 
an organization that works to dismantle structural Islamophobia in the greater Washington region through community organizing, empowerment, political engagement, and political education. She is also currently a board member of the South Asian Americans Leading Together. And Direction will be providing her perspective on Islamophobia and the war on terror. Direction, thanks for joining us. Yeah, um, thank you so much uh, to the Polis Project for having me. And I'm really thankful that we are having this conversation. Um, if you just look yesterday, you know, Biden is uh, supposedly nominating the first black man to head up the Department of Defense. So this is going to be an administration that is going to try to pacify many of our movements by saying that representation equals liberation. Uh, we've given you your diversity representation. So therefore, we will have more culturally competent um, imperial materialism and racism in the country and abroad rather than actually the shifts that we need to see. So I think the conversation we're having today is so, so important, especially as we're about to get into the Biden administration's first 100 days in a few weeks. Um, what I want to talk about is the particular uh, point of Islamophobia and the war on terror. So at Justice for Muslims Collective, you know, we have a definition of Islamophobia as one that is uh, particularly codified within state policy. And so so within the United States, you could not get the animus against Muslim communities, the anti-Muslim animus, without policy that has constructed our community at, uh, communities as terrorists, as criminals, as potential security threats. And that, unfortunately, um, you know, when you look at the agenda that the Biden administration has put out, so they've put out three agendas, um, one for Muslim American communities, one for Arab American communities, and one for the Indian American community, which is supposed to somehow be the umbrella under which all South Asian Americans are supposed to have their rights, which is already problematic because if you look into South Asian uh, communities, we know that particularly Indian Hindu upper caste communities tend to control the narrative and set the agenda for getting all the other marginalized communities that comprise of South Asians within this country. And so I wanna talk a little bit about, right, we have seen no acknowledgement in that agenda from the Biden administration of the role that Biden himself played as a senator, not only under the expansion and putting into the 1994 crime bill that produced the mass incarceration that we see today, but that mass incarceration also created a culture in this country that allowed for the 1996 Anti-Immigration Act. It also then set the, uh, the blueprint for the 2001 war on terror that was launched and Biden played a huge role as a senator really, really trying to push for many of the war on terror policies from the Patriot Act to bombings of countries abroad and under as the VP of Obama when he was part and parcel of when Obama expanded the drones, the surveillance apparatus, the kill lists, the lack of accountability for anyone who had engaged in torture. I mean, there's absolutely no acknowledgement and accountability in any of his agendas that he is putting forth. And if you look at who he's also nominated for his director of national intelligence. This is a woman who spearheaded the drones, um, was the architect of the drone campaign under the Obama administration. So for those of us, you know, who are interested in specifically policy and how this is going to impact many of our communities, you know, we are deeply worried and concerned that the war on terror is going to continue to expand under the Biden administration. Now, there's something interesting, if I may, and please do chat me if I'm over my time. I don't want to take more time away for anyone else. But as I was reading the three agendas between the Muslim American community, the Arab American community, the Indian American community, something very interesting um, is coming up. 
So in the Muslim American agenda, because of the advocacy from Kashmiri rights groups, from particularly Muslims who are talking about the treatment of Uyghurs within China, there's a section under human rights where uh, Biden's administration states that when they come into office, they're going to try to hold the Indian government accountable around the rights of Kashmiris. Um, they're also going to try to hold China accountable for the human rights violations that they are engaging in against the Uyghur community, as well as also the Rohingya who've also been experiencing violence. But then in the Indian American agenda, if you read it, um, the Biden administration is actually saying that they are going to commit to continuing to deepen relationships around the Indian nuclear, the act that they want to work on together, that India will be one of the more core strategic partners for America around defense and fighting terrorism within the entire region. So here you see these two contradictions emerging where one, um, Biden is promising as he comes into office office that he's going to be here for human rights. But then they're also promising to continue to support India in its military ambitions and also its own war on terror. If we remember that the ways in which um, the Kashmiri, uh, what happened around particularly about a year ago or so, they used the terrorism as the justification for going into Kashmir again. And they're using that to also go after a lot of Muslims within India who are resisting and fighting the Indian state's Hindutva. So I'll just stop there, but I think that here's where you see these contradictions emerging, where in one point they're trying to say they're in solidarity, they're against Islamophobia. Biden literally ran his uh, um, campaign to try to get the one million Muslim votes under saying that I'm the president that is not going, I'm the candidate that will not push Islamophobia. Trump is the Islamophobic candidate. But again, if we look in the policies that he's actually supporting, those are Islamophobic policies. So I look forward to engaging in more of a conversation, but it's a little bit of an overview. That's great. Thank you so much, uh, Darakshan. Yeah, sure. Uh, would you like to go again, um, Fanny, and then we can... Yeah, I, I could just, um, I could say a little bit more. Yeah. Sure. Um, so the idea of elite capture has been something that I've been talking about in um, a number of places. And I've primarily based the way that I've been talking about it in U.S. politics, but um, I think the phenomenon that we're dealing with with elite capture um, is a global phenomenon. It's actually one that's, I think, pretty baked into how politics functions pretty generally. So the idea of elite capture, I've often counterposed to the idea of identity politics, not because they rule each other out or anything like that, but because I think identity politics is a more familiar concept that tries to do the kinds of things that elite capture is talking about. What identity politics does is emphasize different ways that we could identify different aspects of our um, political subjectivity or different aspects of our um, personality or different aspects of our ancestry that we could use to form groups that we could use to um, form affinities or um, that we could use to link in bonds of solidarity with other people. And sometimes these are large, um, such as, you know, maybe gender, if we're thinking, especially if we're thinking transnationally, right? Um, much of the world might identify as one gender or another gender and 
there's 7 billion people. So that's quite a bit of people. Um, they might be local, um, but these are ways that we could link with other people. And in the framework of identity politics, what's important about that is that we can do politics from that starting point. So the Combahee River Collective uh, famously um, wrote the statement in Boston that was, I think, very clear-eyed about the transformative potential of doing politics in this way. Because you, if you are clear about the way that political structures relate to you and your life and your experience, then you will be less likely to accept ways of organizing around transforming those political structures that leave you and people like you, I think that's uh, important, um, leave you behind, right? And so the Black feminists who came up with identity politics were trying to say, um, you know, I don't want to put words in their mouth, but I, I take it that part of the point was, if we understand what's important about our particular locations in a social system, the particular experience it is to be a Black woman and not just to be Black writ large or to be a woman writ large, for example, um, or to be a queer Black woman. So not even just to be a Black woman, but to be a Black woman from who um, identifies in this more specific way, then we'll understand the total thing that we all have to do to achieve justice in a society that's structured like this one that's structured in this unjust way. And I think that was an important insight then, it's an important insight now. Um, but ways that people have used this concept maybe um, have gone a different direction from my understanding of, you know, one of the aspects of that original concept that was so transformative. So if you're thinking about identity politics, if you're thinking about politics around the way that you identify and the way that people like you identify, um, one of the things that that emphasizes is the differences between you and that group and other groups around you. And so it kind of puts on front street that um, your group is a certain way and has certain um, political needs and has certain political projects and emphasizes um, the difference between your projects and maybe some, the projects of people who identify differently. And while that's important for a lot of reasons, one of the things that it doesn't invite us to think about or is um, not often used to think about are you know, intra-group differences, the way that we might share an identity with someone um, along some dimensions, but be meaningfully different from them in other ways. And so that's what I've been trying to talk about with elite capture. Um, within any group, um, even if it's a marginalized group, um, but even if, um, also even if it's a relatively privileged group, there's variation, there's um, differences in how much access people have, in how well off they are, in how wealthy or powerful they are. And those differences are often just as politically important, sometimes more so than the differences um, across different groups. So with Elite Capture, I'm trying to kind of start from the place, the same kind of motivations that motivated identity politics, um, but ask the same kinds of questions about differences in power and position within groups and differences that we would 
more readily recognize when we're comparing across groups. Thank you so much. That was, uh, that was fascinating. Um, and uh, next up, we have Maya McCoy. Um, Maya is a writer and organizer who serves as a coordinator for MindMy, a Tamil-led multiracial, multi-ethnic volunteer formation responding to attacks on asylum and rising authoritarianism. She also works on political education with the Chicago Health Coalition for Black Lives and is currently a medical student in the Chicago area. And Maya will be speaking about how Kamala Harris can be accountable towards migrants and asylum seekers and her um, tenant identity, Maya. Thank you. Yeah, thank you so, so much for having me. Um, I'm so honored to be sharing this space with y'all today. I think uh, I wanna talk about three kind of concepts or words when speaking about Harris and also um, the asylum policy that we're seeing under the Trump administration, but also in the transition. And those words are representation, which we've talked about a lot already, solidarity and accountability, which also I think we've talked about a bit today. So to start off with, I think in terms of representation, um, it's absolutely powerful for me personally to see a woman with Harris's background on the national stage. Um, I think I got most emotional when she gave her victory speech um, and spoke to the power, but also the silencing of Black women and women of color historically in this country. And I think um, in terms of building movements, we need to make room for the joy that comes with what many see as a long overdue win um, in, this, uh, in this representation of Kamala Harris. But like um, we've spoken to a bit, I think we definitely need to make sure we're looking mostly at the commitments that this incoming administration has already made and is making as they make the transition. So um, I wanna be clear that Kamala Harris's presence in the White House, like we've spoken about, does not equate to meaningful change, despite it being perhaps a powerful moment historically. Um, and I think it's the easiest type of commitments for Biden to make uh, is committing to, quote unquote, um, a cabinet that looks like America. But then we see folks like Neera Tandon, who's shown a lack of demonstrated commitment to progressive issues, and also Harris with her history as a prosecutor. And so I think within the South Asian American community, the, the loudest discourse around um, Harris's identity is one that's extremely flattening. And like um, Professor Femi was speaking to, doesn't dig into the intra-group nuance within our South Asian community. Um, for example, within the migration story of Kamala Harris's mother's family, there are so many connections that I see to my own family. I'm a mixed race Tamil woman, and but then there are so many ways in which it's different. And I think having the emphasis in the loudest parts of the conversation beyond having an Indian American and a South Asian American in the White House um, these questions are less meaningful when we don't, don't dig into the anti-Blackness and caste apartheid that exist within our South Asian communities, both abroad and in diaspora. So with um, Kamala Harris's uh, family's migration story, for example, there are many ways in which um, uh, immigration to the U.S. is facilitated by caste privilege. 
And so this leaves out um, questions around barriers that caste oppressed folks uh, face when it comes to migration. I think it's important to uplift um, organizations like Equality Labs who are really at the forefront of bringing uh, caste abolitionist principles and practices and conversations to diaspora. And I also think when we think about um, Kamala Harris as a mixed race, black and South Asian woman, it's important for us to ask what it means that we're uplifting this individual who in a lot of ways in the spaces in South Asian American um, diaspora that we've created would have been marginalized if not for her um, proximity to power politically. So I think at Maine Mai, we, um, we came together as a formation this past summer after a SCOTUS case against a Tamil asylum seeker fleeing Sri Lanka, um, who was denied judicial review of his asylum claim. Um, and this case has dire implications, not just for Tamil asylum seekers, but for all asylum seekers, especially black and indigenous um, migrants. And I think our vision is that the South Asian community, the Asian American community and um, the community at large will be more mobilized to see ourselves not just in people in power, but also to show up for those who are disempowered by the hierarchies that Kamala Harris represents. So um, I think it's important to be moving towards a political understanding that means we show up for the people who the system is failing and not just when we see ourselves uplifted within the system. Um, I wanna quickly talk about solidarity and accountability. So when I'm talking about showing up, quote unquote, for um, people in meaningful solidarity, one framework that's been really helpful for me, um, especially since the uprisings this summer has been a framework set up by uh, Daisy's Rising Up and Moving, an organization based in New York City. And they talk about solidarity as kind of this journey um, towards a more transformative solidarity. But the first um, kind of entry level step to a more transformative solidarity for them is what they call symbolic solidarity. So the ways that we show our support for something without actually acting on that support, um, which I think we've seen a lot in Instagram posts and, and t-shirts and all of those types of things. And even Biden putting, um, uh, people with specific identities in his cabinet and appointments. But the final stage that they speak to that kind of invites us to think about the ways in which um, we can work towards the liberation of all people is called transformative solidarity. And they define it as when masses of oppressed communities choose to forgo something that would benefit them and do not take it because it comes at the expense of other oppressed communities. Um, so I think when we talk about Harris and transformative solidarity, if we see her presence in the White House as a victory we can sit back from, even if, um, even as like folks with privilege, we might be benefiting from some of the policies that she's putting forward, then uh, we're really missing out on kind of a deepened level of solidarity. And then finally, I think when it comes to accountability, which I think direction spoke um, well too already. I, I think there's a valid question to be asked about whether um, given the disproportionate power of the executive an accountability framework is even 
appropriate. Um, but I do think that our communities can apply pressure. So one example, um, when kind of going back to asylum in our immigration detention system is this past, last week, I guess, um, the, an organization or coalition called the Defund Hate Network, um, which includes Detention Watch Network, uh, Black Alliance for Just Immigration, and other really amazing immigrant rights organizations. Uh, they were calling to push Congress to defund ICE and CBP. And one thing we've been seeing and hearing is that um, this kind of fear that there will be increasing rates of detention under a Biden administration, given changes in um, border policies. I think it's especially important also, um, going back to the question of caste for South Asian Americans, especially Savarna upper caste folks to show up to protect asylum as it's the most caste diverse um, migration pathway available for our communities. So I'll wrap up there. I think these are just kind of some of the ways um, or places we could harness the energy and joy people are bringing to this moment um, around seeing Harris in the White House and transform them into action. And one last thing I'll say is just the consequences if we don't do that are truly life or death for um, our communities. In November, uh, there were deportation flights um, of Cameroonian and Amazonian uh, asylum seekers back to really unsafe and life-threatening conditions. And we've also seen the COVID, confirmed COVID cases in immigration detention reach over 7,000 um, with a rising death toll. So I think when we talk about accountability, we need to keep in mind the consequences and not just be satisfied with an executive that is full of um, the right quote unquote faces. Thank you. Um, thank you so much, Maya, and thank you to um, all of our panelists. Um, I'd like to move on to a Q&A and to start with some um, audience-submitted questions um, that are for everyone. Um, so the first question we have is, I think you've all touched on this a little bit, but it would be nice to flesh it out. Um, what serious concerns do you see with the new presidency? And I know Maya spoke to this and Darakshan also, but maybe we can start with Professor Fahmy. Yeah. One of the things I'm most concerned with with the new, new presidency is climate policy. And I think climate action, you know, would be probably a better way to put it because not everything is about what laws get passed or even what regulations get passed, but a lot of it is um, where money gets put, where resources get put, where, you know, so-called political capital gets spent. And some of the moves that the Biden administration have made have been concerning. So on, on the one hand, he appointed John Kerry as you know, the so-called climate czar, which in one respect, some people are interpreting as a good sign because he's taken to be serious about this. But another respect, if you look institutionally is concerning um, because um, I believe 
the seat that Kerry's been appointed to is housed within the National Security Council, which goes to suggest, you know, a lot, a lot of the kinds of things that um, Dr. Chan was talking about are going to likely to continue to be the Pentagon and the security state's position on what climate security means for the United States, as opposed to what climate justice means for the world. Um, and so I don't want to take up too much time, but that's just one concrete example of what I'm concerned about. Um, that's great. Um, Garakshan, would you like to respond and maybe talk about, um, flesh out some of your specific concerns? Yeah, no, absolutely. I appreciated what Professor Femi mentioned about the security paradigm. I think that is going to continue to expand under the Biden administration. I think for me, overall, what I'm really worried about is that this is just not what we need to respond to the crises at hand. Like, I think everybody he's appointing the, you know, yes, they're black and brown, but these are neoliberals. I mean, these are not folks who are there on a justice paradigm. And if we look at the situation that not just this country is in, I mean, we are almost at more than a quarter million people dead because of COVID-19, because we don't have the systems in place to be able to take care of black and brown people. I mean, for me, the worry is just what they are responding with. It feels like we're back in 2005 or something, not in 2020, going into 2021 with a serious crisis around economic justice, around just everything. And my concern becomes that one, they are blaming specifically progressives and movements for quote unquote alienating everybody. I mean, the whole ways in which right after um, the election, um, you know, folks who are the justice Democrats or progressives, the ways in which the Democratic Party said they're the reason why we're losing support or the ways in which Obama has been doing this like campaign of just targeting, you know, movements that defund the police. So that is the problem, not that all of these other issues are. So I'm worried that they are putting their attention on really targeting and destroying a more radical left and progressives at a time when those are the time of policies that we need in order to respond to the moment that we are in. And I think that my worry becomes then one, look, they don't really have, I mean, we'll see what happens in Georgia around the Senate because the Senate is up for grabs in that way, right? But the problem with the Dems has always been that they always like to play this middle line. I, I think that they're like left-leaning Republicans. We don't really have necessarily a Democratic Party and they're not united in any way. And I think the Trumpism in terms of Trump's base, yes, they lost, but they didn't lose by a big margin. If you really look at it, they still came out pretty hard. And I just worry if in the next two years, this administration is not able to provide and be there for people, that people might just then in 2022, when we get the, another election, people are going to go swing right back to red because they're going to be sick of the Democrats. And so I'm really worried that they are not really coming to what the moment calls of them. They're not understanding the pulse on the ground. They're not understanding how difficult the situation has become for people. It is unbearable. It is unlivable. And they're responding again in ways that just, just doesn't make sense to me. So for me, it's like just not even one policy, one area. It's literally the entire house is on fire. <laughs> and we have to we have to call that. That is what it is and they're not really taking and responding to the moment. And this is why I do say that, yes, you know, we have to engage political power and, and, and the government, but really for me, it's where movements and the mutual aid efforts and where the community power is being built, that we really have to support that because those are the folks who are really showing up for people who are dying right now. I mean, that's where all the efforts are. So that's what I'm really, really worried about again, is that, you know, we're, we're 
we did all this work and they're coming in as if we're 20 years ago. Not that it was better then, but still it just doesn't feel like it's responding to the moment we're in. Yeah, that's, uh, I guess it's the democratic version of make America great again, right? Like, yeah. Um, uh, Maya, did you want to respond or did you have any specific uh, concerns about the presidency that you wanted to get into? Um, I think y'all covered it really well. I definitely um, agree with everything that's been said. I, I am just generally worried that people will be satisfied with kind of the bare minimum undoing of the worst of the Trump administration and not um, not see the ways that organizers and the movement for black lives and all of these amazing um, organizations are really imagining radical alternatives. And um, none of that work is being like, um, like we've spoken to just, it's not being uh, uplifted in the ways that it deserves to be so. Yeah, that's my concern. Thank you all. Yeah, it's um, it's not being uplifted, and you know, as you all have pointed out, it's being actively undone in so many um, spaces, and that's really um, frightening. Which, because you all touched on, you know, sort of defund the police, we have another question from the audience that um, addresses this, which is to all of you. Um, and the question is, how do you see the new presidency dealing with issues like defunding the police and its, um, you know, real implications to um, black and brown um, communities? Does uh, anybody want to start? Darakshan, would you like to begin? Um, I'm happy to, but also I'm sure everyone else has really great input. Um, I mean, I think the ways in which Obama is going around and becoming this mouthpiece of uh, democratic conservatism. Um, and to me, that's really worrying and concerning. I mean, the defund the police movement, we have to really honor the work of black abolitionists who have been doing this work for such a long time, particularly black women, you know, folks like Miriam Kaba, Dr. Angela Davis, you know, critical exposure, all these groups have been really, really not only shifting our political consciousness, but also have been doing the work on the ground with organizers. And so to me, there's one part of it where I think at the national level, yes, they can engage in a campaign to, you know, silence the work, stop the work, destroy the work, all of that. But as someone who is connected at the local level to organizing, defund the police, like around the uprisings because of the murder of George Floyd, if you looked at local cities for the first time, tens and thousands of people put in testimony to local city councils as the budgets were being put forth. And people demanded that the money that is being put towards policing to new jails be put towards critical social services. And yes, folks didn't get everything, but all across like council members, cities and states were forced to actually turn around and put money towards where our communities need. So the way I see it in some way, I'm like, okay, you can go and talk all the garbage you want. And yes, it, from a national you know, perspective, it's, it's unhealthy, but at the local level, the power that black organizers in particular have already built, I don't think that is going to shift and go anywhere. I think that that power is gonna continue to grow. And again, I mean, everywhere you go, it's so many places like I just know in DC, 
so many DC residents put in testimony for the first time. I mean, nobody wants to ever engage the budget process. It's one of the things that like people have been trying to get, advocates have been trying to push community members to be like, can you please like think about the budget because it's important. People didn't care in the past. This time, everybody was like, what's the budget? I wanna know where's money going? And so I don't want to you know, overlook that beautiful work and powerful work that has been led by black organizers. I think that that will sustain. I think we will continue to support it. Not the national level, I am worried about what this means for issues around CJ, criminal justice, uh, around mass incarceration, um, it, because I do think that the abolition calls um, were very, very important to also push on a national scale, stop buildup of jail, stop this just criminalization regime that we have going on, and the ways in which it's being, you know, sort of um, really repressed at this point because of the spokespersons that are there, that does worry me. But I also think the resiliency and the power that organizers have built, it's going to continue to be built more. So I want to hold both. Thank you, Direction. Um, Sammy, would you like to respond? Yeah, um, I, I completely agree uh, with everything that was just said. Um, and you know, I think the Democrats since um, I think the mid eighties have been running to the right of the Republican party on policing um, in black and brown communities, sometimes loudly, sometimes quietly. Um, but, you know, exactly as Dr. I was just saying, you know, the place to look for answers here is at black organizations and it just, you know, we're, we're very unlikely to see it come from this administration. Um, an idea that the, you know, and I think the kind of, what's interesting to me about the defund proposals is they're saying, um, you know, stop putting all this money and resources into violence work and start putting those resources, those same resources into, you know, into care work, into transformative work, into restorative work. And I think that's exactly the kind of thing that's going to, um, I, th I think it's the only kind of thing that could really address the actual problems here. And um, the Black Panthers in the 70s pushed for this idea of community control over police, or, or you might say community control over public safety, because I think the way that communities would um, would work for public safety would not look like policing at all and should not look like policing at all. Um, and there's still groups around um, pushing that particular interpretation of how to respond to racist police violence. There's the National Alliance for Against Racist and Political Repression. Um, here in DC, there's uh, Pan-African Community Action. Um, and so this is an idea that hasn't gotten talked about quite as much as some of the other approaches, but I think it fits in with them and I think it's a good approach. Thank you. Maya, would you like to um, respond or add anything? Um, again, I think I agree with everything that's been said um, so far. I definitely, uh, I don't have a lot of, 
I don't hold a lot of hope in this administration to be pushing the needle on anything when it comes to really anything. Um, but I, I do agree that um, that the momentum is continuing to build in communities, and um, totally, the credit goes to uh, the organizers on the ground doing work. Um, so I'm hopeful. I'm still hopeful, but my hope is not in this administration to. Um, support or or even not be a roadblock to this type of work. Thank you all. Um, we have a third audience question about elite capture. Um, how does one place Harris within the conversation around elite capture? Um, I think we can start with Jamie. Uh, front and center, I guess. Um, you know, she's she's a good example of, I think, all the complexities around elite capture, because I don't think anyone from the most critical Kamala as a cop meme sharer. Well, you know, it's the internet, so who knows what they think. But you know, I think most people who are thinking serious about, seriously about this, nobody thinks that, you know. Kamala Harris made a pact when she was, you know, that little girl on the bus and decided to lock up black and brown people, right? She entered into a system that requires that, that kind of complicity in order to advance in the way that she wanted, right? So, so we're not dealing with, for the most part, we're not dealing with people who have some kind of inherent different inherently you know fundamentally different moral constitution we're dealing with what the system does to filter out the people that it's going to hand power to from everyone else and so i think you know i think harris fits there um, i think baltimore the uprising in baltimore is a particular good example it's a black attorney general a black mayor under a black presidency and those people all in lockstep mobilized the military against the people in Baltimore who were uprising against racist repression. So I think, you know, what we have to come to understand in the United States is something that I think is well understood many other places where, you know, the formal government might entirely be made of people who look like you and speak your language right you're you're just not going to be able to answer political questions just by you know pointing out which identity the people in power are you just have to look at what the system does to channel their ambitions and what that means for the rest of us Thank you so much, Maria. Did you have anything that you wanted to say? Yeah, I think um, that definitely, I, I definitely wanna um, talk a little bit more about the kind of model minority discourse that uh, comes with this question. So I, I think when we talk about like, is, um, are people just doing what they quote unquote need to do to get ahead? Uh, I think that frames success um, in a very specific 
capitalist white supremacist system that's based in exploitation. And we really need to reimagine success in a more values-based way. Um, and also ask what, once people get to these positions of privilege and power, do they use those positions to ensure resources go back into giving dignity to their communities to, or do they make sure systems of ex exploitation are broken or stopped? Um, or is it really just kind of a continuation of this individualistic um, type of success? So I think uh, it's really harmful to, to all of us, to all of our communities to think about the model minority status and the people who don't quote unquote live up to that model as less than, um, especially when we think about intra-community difference and the ways in which our communities aren't a monolith. And, um, and yeah, so I think it's just really important when we think about elite capture also to think about denouncing that model minority status and the ways that that's um, weaponized to like further marginalize the most um, folks like uh, immigrants who are coming through asylum systems or black trans women who are at the forefront of um, harm reduction, which is such an important concept right now, but we don't see those people fall into kind of the quote unquote um, model minority or worthy of um, the types of power that we're talking about in elite capture. So that's what I have to add there. That's great. Thank you so much. Uh, Direction, did you have anything that you wanted to add or comment on? Um, I mean, I think that that entire conceptualization, um, you know, Professor Femi is actually really brilliant. So I'm actually really looking forward to reading more if you have something written on it, because it's, you know, you, you talked about also Baltimore. And I think that that's a really great case example of you can have um, leadership from the community, you have black leadership, um, and still you can have, you know, so much police brutality against black people. Um, and so I think that that is pretty much what I believe, especially under the Biden administration, given at least half of his administration, I believe will be people of color. I think it's important for us to keep in mind that you can have black and brown people in power if the system is not built for our people and it's a white supremacist system, then it doesn't really shift that much. You can still um, end up getting a lot of violence as a result. And so I think that will be very, very important, particularly I think about what do we need to do to really raise the political education of our communities who might be really confused now because they're like, wait a minute, but this leadership is black and brown. So what is going on here? And yet I'm not seeing any kind of differences in terms of policy. And so I do think for from my vantage point as an organizer, I think about how do we continue to engage our community members so that they are not confused while also navigating the violence at the same time. Because um, that is something I think that um, we will need so that we don't, our movements don't get pacified or don't lose the steam that they need. Um, so yeah, uh, that's what I'm just thinking about and reflecting on. Uh, that's great, thank you, uh, Direction. Um, so I wanted to talk about picking up, you know, I was having a discussion with Sushitra about this, um, about how the media is basically also captured by, um, you know, especially from South Asians, like the model minority, um, upper caste, um, South Asians who also, the only critique or any, you know, um, discussions that we see of 
Kamala Harris also come from this lens of the model minority who are now also empowered to basically speak about um, her election. And I just wanted to ask, because in a system where we prioritize individual success, the minority elite capture is sort of viewed as a win for the entire community. And we have minority elite capture in so many places. Um, how then do we create room for um, legitimate critiques? Because if you look at media critiques of Kamala, they're all from like people like, you know, Anand Gedardas or whatever. So how do we create room for, for critique? Um, anyone, <laughs> Maya, would you like to begin? Just <laughs> maybe, maybe I'll take a take a shot. Um, so, yeah, that's it's it's a hard question and um, a question I have a interesting. Um, it's a particularly interesting question for me just because uh, Nigerian Americans are um, by some, by, you know, measures of educational attainment, you know, firmly in the kind of model minority realm of success. But I think, especially in the United States, but I think, you know, because we're black, because no one can name more than two African countries, um, that's not necessarily the um, impression that you know average people have of the group, right? So, so some aspects of the model minority discourse fit, and some don't. Um, but I think you know, even among us, or you know, among people that are aware of the kind of background conditions, I think. In a way, it's almost reassuring when people respond to, you know, success like Kamala Harris's in a celebratory way, because, you know, there's, because it at least suggests that there's some kind of unity of a positive kind that people are willing to celebrate others. And that's not always how these communities function, right? Um, but, but, you know, as, as Marie was saying, I think you, you really do want to challenge the idea, you know, anything that happens to anyone from our group is, um, a win for the group. That's not the version of collective. That's not the version of, you know, being for the collective that we want. And I think the, the big thing that occurs to me is just more forms of organization. Right. There, there just were more groups, more organized groups, I think, in earlier eras of, I think, world history, but especially, you know, the de-organization of the U.S. working classes is just especially dramatic in the way that they managed to isolate people in these weird suburbs and just lose the organizational ties that cement communities, you know, whatever it is, whether it's the, you know, South Asian bowling league or something, but just like things that get us together in organized ways, because those social 
groups are also bases for accountability and bases for organizing and power building, which is why they don't want us to have them. Yeah. If I could add on to that, um, I think one thing also is considering South Asian as kind of a political category, I think it has potential to be um, to be kind of what Amy was talking about of like a place that brings uh, a lot of very diverse political interests into one uh, one category that can really build power. But I think when we're talking about critique, often um, we do, I do see the need for political education in our communities where the discourse is not, uh, not devoid of nuance. So I think the things that are also just like the click, most clickbaity and the easiest to really um, pitch to a media source or be like viral on Twitter are the, oh, there's a, like, I saw myself in this, um, in this person in power, or I, like, I do think that people are really drawn to the the expressions of joy. And I, I think that that's what we saw a lot of, um, especially right after the nomination. Um, but often those were really disappointing kind of takes on, on the varied nuances within Harris's identity, but also within our communities and what, what the needs are um, on the ground. So, so I'd like to think of it as kind of an opportunity um, of hopefully in the future, there is more under a building understanding um, that allows us to make space for legitimate criticism without people moving immediately to, um, to attack or to, to feel defensive or to feel like, uh, the criticism is unfair or weighted too heavily on um, one person or another. Yeah, I think that's, that's great because you also can, you know, risk being labeled a racist or a misogynist or whatever if you don't, you know, if you look at a person's policies over their um, um, identity and direction. Did you have anything that you wanted to um, oh. add? Yeah, I mean, I think um, without getting too much in depth into model minority, I think that one, um, there's a whole conversation we can have about how model minority is built upon anti-Blackness and what it means for the ways in which our communities have bartered around citizenship to gain access to this country and who that left not only, um, you know, threw under the bus internally, but also externally. I think the other part is about, you know, South Asian, um, I think, is it an identity based on because of our ethnic origin or is it a political identity? And I think sometimes the two are being interchangeably talked about where we haven't really built what a political South Asian identity looks like. Is it in resistance to white supremacy and the model minority myth or is it a further support and giving credence to what that South Asian identity has been built in order for racial categorization in the United States? So I think that we have a lot of work internally to figure out because I can tell you on the ground if you walked up to someone who would be considered South Asian and said, hey, you're South Asian, a lot of people will look at you like, what the hell are you talking about? You know, I'm Pakistani or I am Indian or I am Bangladeshi or I'm Nepali or I'm Sri Lankan. Like 
people are not necessarily identifying with South Asian in the way we might be categorizing them. Um, in other parts, Desi is what people have actually decided to write called like drum, the work that drum does, folks are identifying as Desi. And so what do though these labels mean? You know, what is their, um, like what is the political um, identity that we're talking about here? So that's where I am at in terms of we have a lot of work to do. And with social media, I would say that um, what I have found is that when you are somebody who is quote unquote a minority, if you are saying a certain narrative that is palatable to the mainstream media, you get a lot of traction and support. Um, you get invited, you get uh, brought to talks because when you're a brown person that is supporting um, what people want you to say, it gives credence to then white people not having to face their racism because how can I be racist if a brown person is also saying the thing we want them to say, right? Um, so that's what I would um, just add in terms of this question. Actually, great. Thank you all so much. I just wanted to check. It's noon. Um, and so I just wanted to check if you have time for a couple of more questions. Um, yeah, I'm sorry. I can't hear you. Okay, direction has left. Okay, a couple of more is okay. okay. Um, I'm just going to wait for um, direction to come back. That's great. Function, do you have time for a couple more questions? Two more? Sure. My internet is just a little bit wonky right now, so sorry about that. <laughs> yeah. um, okay, so I just kind of wanted to pick up on this, you know, um, concept of identity and like the flattening of um, Kamala's identity and the South Asian um, identity and um, ask like a two-part um, question, which is we've seen, um, you know, how Kamala has sort of cherry-picked palatable aspects of her identity. Uh, you know, she's never really talked about her caste privilege, uh, even though she'll go with Mindy Kaling and cook South Indian food and be like, oh, we all eat South Indian, you know, only vegetarian food or whatever. So she's very much picking these palatable aspects of her identity and not talking about other very problematic aspects. She hasn't commented on the Cisco case, which happened in her home state. Um, she doesn't talk about the violence that is being unleashed on the Muslim population in India, in basically in her name. Um, and so my question is um, to everyone, where do you think, we often see that people in minority positions who are elected to, who, who are minorities who are elected to positions of power um, swing completely in the opposite direction and sort of overcompensate. Um, so I wanted to ask where you think um, she will overcompensate. Do you think she'll be very hawkish on foreign policy or do you know she think she's going to be really tough on crime? Um, that's first. And second, I wanted to ask um, when uh, American, you know, imperialism abroad will really become uh, a voter issue among our communities. Um, because American imperialism is also the cause of like the refugee crisis, and you know, um, so I guess that's that's my two-part question. And um, yeah, I can start. Um, I do definitely think that in certain ways she'll she already has and will 
receive more criticism when compared to Biden and her white colleagues. I think just because um, for folks who do see themselves in her, there are higher expectations. And I think we've already talked about one of the ways, one of the places that I would say, um, like with her history as a prosecutor and um, all of the ways in which she has uplifted the prison industrial complex in her career. I think we've already talked about how the response to demands from the movement for black lives um, is gonna be a place that I don't think we'll see meaningful change. Um, I also, you mentioned the Cisco case and I think when it comes to caste um, and issues around caste abolition, uh, Harris hasn't herself shown a demonstrated interest in being at the forefront of any conversation about caste or Hindu nationalism. One thing that I do wanna mention is um, just by having Harris as one of the most visible South Asians, um, quote unquote, in, in public today, um, one thing that I do think is powerful and important is that the story of her mother breaking caste endogamy and, and breaking racial lines to marry her father, I think is one that is important and is, um, isn't something that Harris uh, really speaks to often, but um, I think it's a, an opportunity to bring folks into the conversation around caste, um, but not necessarily because Harris herself is, um, is doing any meaningful work there. And then when it comes to American imperialism becoming a voter issue, I think one thing that we've seen at Main Mai is um, the issue of asylum is one that is popular across political positions. So we've had um, Tamil folks who are really right wing um, support our, uh, our campaigns uh, to protect asylum and so I do, I do think that there is an opportunity for political education to, to draw those ties a little bit closer of, um, of foreign policy and migration pathways that our communities that are, are familiar with um, and really kind of broaden the conversation and also um, the issues that people are voting based on. So that's what I'll add there. Would you like to? Yeah, I um, so I just have a couple of things to add. Uh, one of, I, and they both revolve around the way that um, the U.S. education and media system kind of makes things make sense that really shouldn't. Um, so, so, you know, Kamala Harris doesn't seem to talk about caste privilege that I've seen, as folks have said, and you know, I, I just, I wonder how much she knows about it. Like, just, just at all. Because growing up in the U.S., um, so, so I'm Nigerian-American, Nigeria had something like nine military coups military dictatorship, there was a genocide in my parents' lifetime. And some of these things were, and, and I not only grew up in a Nigerian American family, but 
in a Nigerian American social community, right? The, the greater Cincinnati area Nigerians. So I was around Nigerians all the time. And I barely knew any, I very vaguely knew that for a while, you know, for a while of my life, Nigeria was a military dictatorship. I was very vaguely aware of that. It was only because I got interested in politics that I really came to understand those things. And not just because I came and became interested in politics, but became interested in politics from an anti-colonial perspective. Um, and so, so just linking that with the second question about when imperialism is going to be a, a, a sort of mobilizing issue, there's just something about the way that the United States produces and distributes knowledge that has been, I've, I've never seen anything like it. it. You know, the British will have debates about whether or not the empire was a good thing. But my my colleagues, you know, some of the most educated people in this country didn't even know that the United States was an empire. Like you say, you describe the American empire, they look at you like you're some kind of weird person, not just describing a basic fact of the matter, but, you know. Um, and and I, I, yeah, I've, I've never, I, I don't know of another place uh, of another empire for which that was true, that it was able to so thoroughly professionalize the actual management of empire that they could defang anti-colonial politics in this particular thorough way. And so, you know, it's gonna take a huge political organizing effort of the kind Maya was talking about to get out from under that, I think. Direction, would you like to add to that and um, comment? Sure, my computer, my internet doesn't die, y'all, again. Um, but um, I think, yeah, seconding everything that was said, um, I also just think that for me, um, until we can't get through this piece of American exceptionalism, um, it's really hard to do any work around like anti-imperialism efforts because the moment you start, there is this narrative, even by working class people of color that we've internalized too, of America is somehow so much better. You know, our authoritarianism is so much better. Our racism is somehow so much better than what is happening abroad. Um, it's just everywhere else, it's, it's just always the worst, but somehow American violence is just more civilized um, and, you know, deal with it. And so I think that that is part of what um, our challenge is to also get unpack really how American exceptionalism shows up. Because I think until that doesn't happen, people are like, why do we even want to care about anti-imperial uh, imperial efforts? Because it's so much more worse abroad. You know, we should be thankful and grateful. I mean, particularly from an immigrant perspective, what I'm often told when I try to bring these issues up with my community is, but do you know how bad it is at back home? Like that is the worst. Like you should be glad you're facing the violence here. This is nothing. You, you know, what you face by our people is the worst thing. And I think that is a lot to also unpack among our people around um, historical traumas that we are living with and our generations are living with and the pain of when your own people commit violence towards you. I don't think folks have healed from that. Um, and so people are like, all right, yeah, it's white supremacist violence. Again, I don't wanna speak for everybody, but just from my per personal perspective in the work I've done, people are like, yeah, this violence is bad, but it's not as bad as what we have gone through when we lived abroad.
Um, okay, that's great. I, my final question is a, is a very short one, um, which is to everyone, which is, um, is true transformative solidarity or any kind of check and balance against um, elite capture of a group's values achievable in the America that we inhabit today, which is utterly capitalistic, neoliberal, or do we have to burn things to the ground and, <laughs> and start, start over? Um, Darkshan, why don't you start, please? Oh my God, that's a huge question. <laughs> I'm like, I'm, I'm like questioning. I'm like, do I should I be honest and then get more surveillance on me, or do I, do I not do that? Um, so yeah, I'll, I'll just leave it in terms of. Um, I think when the foundation of this country is built on this much violence, um, I don't know if that can ever be the place for liberation or the kind of world we seek to build, if that is even possible when the foundations are so violent. I'll just leave it there. <laughs> um, Maya? Um, yeah, I, I would agree. I think we can't and we shouldn't look um, to state systems to be the source of radical change. I think in on the ending 2020 on a hopefully inspiring note, um, we have a lot of examples of transformative solidarity at smaller scales. So especially this year with um, the ways that mutual aid networks have been mobilized in the face of COVID and the ways during the uprisings we've seen um, survivors of sexual trauma be at the forefront of organizing for prison abolition. I think we we can look to examples. I don't think that um, we need to we need to uh, look to the system to be um, a meaningful place to see this change um, happen. I actually, I don't, I don't know if, I don't think my view is optimistic, but maybe, maybe a little, maybe a little, but I, I think, you know, can we stop elite capture of our politics, our agendas, of our institutions in a society built like this? No. Um, but can those facts about the institutions um, prevent us from building better ways of power management in our communities and our organizing? Um, I, I don't think they can stop us from doing that, right? There's, you know, I think um, rank and file center working organizing is not something the state can prevent us from mm -hmm. advancing. I think democratic management of um, of our organizing initiatives um, and deliberative decision making, that's not something the state um, or the capitalists can stop us from doing. I don't think the cops can prevent us from, I mean, they'll certainly try, but I don't think they can <laughs> prevent us from um, having bargaining for the common good models that unite unions with community members um, and advance those 
goals in a way that respects both. If they could, they would have stopped the Chicago's teacher, the Chicago Teachers Union from doing it. They would have stopped the Oklahoma teachers from doing it. They would stop. Uh, mm. Uh, they would have stopped the SEIU local in Minnesota of immigrants from Somalia, Nepal, and Ecuador who did it, um, but they couldn't. And mm -hmm. I think those are things we can do, and those things we better do if we're going to um, create a better system than this one, because it's the only chance we have. Yeah, I think uh, I think that's a great place to conclude. Um, thank you all so much again for uh, for joining us today, and thank you again to the Borders Project for um, hosting us. To our audience, if you appreciate what you've heard or read, please do consider supporting um, Polis Project's work. Um, thank you for joining again, and take care.